Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude. I'm Maria Gibson, and this is my mom, Annie Gudger. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief and to be in the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for any answers here because there really aren't any. We're just looking to have a conversation. And we'll tell you a little bit about us. My biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed, eventually for the good, and that took time. Eventually, there was Scott, my fabulous husband, then Maria, our beautiful daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker a joy seeker. I wrote my way through grief. I filled stacks of journals. Years later, I wrote a memoir. The Fifth Chamber by Anne Gudger is a story of love and loss. The Fifth Chamber as in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you fill it with? It's my grief story and how I found my way back to me, how I found my way back to love and a beautiful life. I'm delighted to say that The Fifth Chamber is coming out this September. We'll put a link to pre-order in the show notes. For me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. A thing I've realized years later is that when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can talk with or connect with more people. The past couple of years, I've lost multiple people in my life and several horses and cats. I feel most deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. We like to say that grief is transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to connect to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say to be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up for being curious about what grief can look like in its wholeness. These conversations aren't a prescription because there's really not a prescription for grief. We're just here offering a little bit of hope and perhaps another perspective. So as we like to say, grab your coffee and let's talk. Today, we're delighted to welcome Tanya Friedman, who will read a piece of her writing and then we'll be in conversation with her. Hi, Tanya. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. We're so happy to have you. So I'm going to start with Tanya's bio so you get to, little, get to know a little bit more about her. Tanya is happiest when she's in the middle of a great book, when she's rearranged words in just the right order, or when she's floating in a cool lake on a hot day. She spends a lot of time thinking about how privilege and access to power shape our inner and outer worlds and what to do about it. Someday, soonish, she is going to finish her memoir about anti-racism, compassion, and teaching. Meanwhile, you can find her walking her dog through Brooklyn, reading on the B train, or filled with awe that so much suffering and joy can exist simultaneously in each of us and everywhere. So please welcome Tanya and let us know what you'll be reading today. Hey, everyone. I am, again, so happy to be here. I am going to read a piece about my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, um, who was a huge figure 
in my life. Um, and yeah. Um, and this is a, the piece actually, I think came to me, the first line was a line that was in my head a lot um, because before, before there was the rest of the piece because um, it was, it, well, you'll, you'll hear. Um, okay. In the end, there was only the beginning. Tell me everything about your life. My grandmother grabbed my hand as she always had a little too hard. I answered honestly, because I knew that's what she wanted. Always, she'd pushed for truth in words, action, and art. As I wrapped up the current story of how I was, who I cared about, what filled my days, she said, now, tell me everything. Answering the same question again and again worked like a psychic excavator. Each round of answers took me deeper. I could almost let myself believe she repeated herself intentionally, but a shadow of confusion told a different story, a truer, harder one. As her short-term memory failed, the intervals between her repeated questions contracted. Hours of conversation became 45 minutes, then eight, then three, until she interrupted before I began. Tell me everything. Soon, it didn't matter how I answered. She could not hold on to new stories, as desperately as she wanted to know mine. So I asked for her stories. I'd heard them my whole life, but now she told them with brighter color, more weather, worse smells, or maybe I listened better, unsure if I would hear them again. She described watching her father, a traveling salesman, pack ladies' gloves in his case, silk, suede, lace trimmed, or moving with my grandfather to Washington, D.C. as FDR enacted the New, De New Deal, how everyone they knew converged, buzzy with hope for the country, or how when she saw the awe on the faces of a group of middle schoolers as they entered the Great Hall of the Met, she understood in a flash how to restructure museum education. When her long-term memory also eroded, the scroll of her life wound back on itself. Years disappeared, then decades. Everything since my grandfather's death dissolved. Then his whole illness was gone. The work at the museum she loved and loved to hate faded. Her children, my mother and aunt's whole childhoods vanished. The honeymoon years, the telegrammed proposal, college blurred into words she'd said a million times, but now sat on her tongue like too much cotton. Her two best friends betrayed her by dying and 70 years of friendship evaporated. She spoke her memories as questions and the only answers she knew were her childhood. Her end of life wishes had always been clear. As soon as I'm of no use, just leave me in a pasture and keep on moving the way goats do. Because she said this so often, I came to believe a dispassionate attitude toward the elderly is a key characteristic of goats, what with the way they traipse through fields abandoning their grandparent goats. A not very intensive internet search does not bear this out. It doesn't matter either way, because when my grandmother's mind faltered and stalled and finally refused to move forward at all, 
she stayed alive. I thought I would be ready to die when I could no longer participate, she told me one morning, the sun easing up over the park, filling the front room with light. But here I am. I must want to stay alive, although I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why. By then, only her childhood remained. A rascal, a misfit, the rebellious younger sister to an angelic firstborn girl, she understood she didn't rank in her mother's eyes from the beginning. There was, she told me, as if just realizing it, as, as if she hadn't said this a thousand times and three times in the last hour, a freedom in not being chosen. For better or worse, mostly better, it was not a freedom she afforded me. The firstborn grandchild, the only girl, she claimed me. She claimed me with her too tight grip and her big opinions. That did not mean she gushed. Instead that I and everything I did merited attention and critique. Assessing a drawing I'd made in third grade where I'd carefully blended the colors of the sky and sea below. She said, what's unusual here is the way that bird has flown partly off the page. The rest is fairly pedestrian. But also to her, I was a wonder. I am endlessly intrigued by our similarities and differences, she wrote on one of the last postcards she sent me. We had plenty of both. Before I visited, she often called to demand I make separate time for her. I do not want to share you. Her death, a relief in so many ways, left me unclaimed. Sometimes in a museum, I feel a slight neck strain, my head wanting to turn before I know I'm looking for her. When my daughter was born, six full years after she died, I woke up for months, months with a flash, flash of confusion. How had I forgotten to tell her this amazing news? Why hadn't she called to, to congratulate me? The grief is not linear and neither is the joy. Beginnings and endings spiral around each other, stretching and contracting, a kaleidoscope of shifting moments and surprising colors. Oh, Tanya, that's just so good. I've heard it before and I love hearing it again. And um, I'm so touched by your remembering your grandmother and um, what you like part of this is part of what you've documented, right? But also all the all the feelings. And of course, as as you know, my mom has dementia. And so I always really appreciate hearing other people's stories and that whole unspooling of memory um, that for us who are here can be really unsettling. Um, but you you've like you've made it into art. And so thank you. Thank you. I was very touched by the uh, so many different griefs all wound into one piece there and for me personally like uh i don't understand dementia or why people stay around or um i am maybe not the goat mentality but i put people out to pasture and uh not a huge fan of western medicine keeping the physical body alive all the time um, and it is where we are. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a always an interesting conversation. 
um, to hear other people's perspectives on that too. Yeah. I, when my grandmother said to me, I don't know why I'm still alive. Like I totally, I thought I would want to be dead, but you know, but, but my body's keeping me alive. There must be something. I remember I, I said to my therapist at the time, I'm, I'm just worried because she's just not dealing with her, you know, her mortality. Well, and my therapist was like, um, I think she's pretty clear on it. I think there's, there's someone else who's maybe not dealing with it so well. It's like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not ready. Um, so yeah, it is, it is that thing is dementia gets people get deeper into dementia. They say some things that are like so beautifully clear and true. Right. And some things that for us are totally garbled. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the things my mom has said, um, I, I, I hope they make sense to her and they mm-hmm. sure don't to me, but then there'll be those moments of your grandmother's clarity and wondering why she was still here. Yeah. It was super fascinating that she, and, and maybe not surprising because she she did often talk about her older sister as this, the dynamic in her family of origin where her older sister was perfect and she was the opposite. Um, but she was, my mother actually had hired a friend of mine to, to do some video interviews of my grandmother toward the end of her life. And he was doing them. And at one point he said to me, wow, your great aunt, her older sister must be an incredible person. And she was a lovely person, but she was a very, like my grandmother had a huge personality and big opinions. And her older sister was very meek and much quieter. And it just was so fascinating that, you know, right. I mean, I don't know if we can be objective about people, but to the outside world, it looked one way, but her experience, because her experience as a child was so different, was was just, you know, the perspective was completely different. Um, you know, and that, I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? But that her sibling, the role of her sibling in her family was sort of the, certainly at the end, the biggest, the big story of her life, although she had lived a really big life um, beyond that. Well, can you, um, can you tell us more about your grief story? I mean, you know, a big part of my identity, I think as well as a child was that I had four grandparents, right? So, I mean, a lot of people did, but that was all of my grandparents played a role in my life. And so I think that I say that to say, like, I sort of felt like I didn't have grief, right? Because I was like, everybody was alive. My parents were alive. My grandparents were alive. Um, you know, an, an early ish grief that I can think of was, um, that I had a, I had, you know, I desperately wanted a cat, maybe similarly as Maria desperately wanted a dog, (laughs) you know, I desperately wanted a cat and I finally got a cat and then my brother, it turned out my brother was very allergic. And so, um, I, you know, we, we, I had to give away the cat and I'm sure, well, I don't know what actually happened, but we took the cat with us to visit my grandparents at their weekend house in Connecticut in the country. And then these second cousins came to visit and then they took the cat. So maybe somebody had told me that this was going to happen and I didn't register it, or maybe it sort of happened in the moment, but 
that was a grief and one that I absolutely blamed my grandmother for, because in my, my experience of it was that she said to them, well, why don't you take the cat? And then they took the cat. And so she had given away my cat, um, which is, you know, not totally out of character that she would just, <laughs> you know, not that nobody would think about how I would feel. Um, I don't know. That's just, I guess, because I'm thinking about her, that came to me, but I think the, the first bigger grief was my grandfather died, my father's father. So my other grandmother's husband. And when he was dying and clearly dying in the hospital, we went to visit him. I was in 10th grade, I think. And I, you know, walked out and started crying. So one thing I say in this piece is that my grandmother and I had many similarities and differences. And one difference was she was not a crier and not like, not nostalgic, <laughs> not, emo you know, and I am. Um, and I walked out into the hall and I was crying and my grandmother, so my other grandmother came out and I was embarrassed because, you know, she was losing her husband and I was just losing my grandfather and she was being brave. And so I tried to not cry. And she said, you know, he'll always be your grandfather. And that was, you know, sort of this thing, one that just see, I cry all the time <laughs> that she that it was so generous in this moment where she was losing, you know, her whole life, it felt like, and, you know, that of course she was going to still take care of me, but also it was really transformative in how I thought about, you know, about what plane we're connecting to people on because, and she said, you know, you just need to know what, who he is to you and he will always be that to you. And it was, you know, it's such an interesting thing, but it really worked. And I, you know, at some point I was like, well, who like that grandfather in some ways I didn't, I wasn't as close to, I didn't have an intellectual connection with the way I did with my mother's parents, but like, that was a person on earth who always thought I was beautiful. Like, and so there was this way that I was like, oh, somebody, I get to hold that. Like there's, you know, wherever his spirit is, whatever it is, like that still exists this being that like thinks I'm fabulous um, is always there. So I feel like that's part of my, my grief story is that, you know, and that went as I have lost people really trying to think about like, who, who are they to me? And how, and you know, where do I hold, where do I get to keep holding that? How do I keep, keep that alive? That's a beautiful gift, right? Cause I'm, I believe so strongly that people continue to be alive as long as we hold them in our lives and our hearts and we continue to tell stories about them. Um, so for your grandmother to give you that gift and that perspective at a relatively young age that now you've carried through your life, um, I thank you for sharing that with us. It's, you know, I, don't, I mean, I guess I like to have an expansive idea of love and of grief. And my parents have lived in the same apartment for nearly for close to 50 years and they're getting ready to move. So there's, there's some grief for all of us because it's, you know, it's a home. My father said he's not nostalgic about, about places, but the rest of us seem to be. And so, so, but one, and one of the things my mother did was they're moving to another apartment. It's slightly smaller. It's not like they have to hugely downsize, but, but she's trying to sort of clean things out. And so I have three brothers. We were all over there picking the things that we wanted. And 
she has had a bunch of jewelry that my that her granddaughters were going through, sort of picking what they wanted. And then she was like, oh, that's my mother's wedding ring, like in a little box. And so I was like, well, I get that. <laughs> like, you know, like the seven-year-old doesn't get my my grandmother's wedding ring. So I so I took it um, and I've been wearing it. And it's and I've been wearing it on my thumb. It's kind of big. And so, and my partner was like, your grandmother must have had really big fingers. And I was like, yeah, that's weird. And then I, you know, it's engraved on the inside and I, my eyes aren't quite good enough to really read it. So I, I said to my mother, do you know what it says inside? She said, I think my sister remembers, but I don't know. And so then my, I had my daughter who has better eyes look at it. And she said, oh, it says March 11th, 1914. And I was like, well, that date makes no sense because that's before my grandmother was born <laughs> and it's not a, you know, so I finally just with, and with my aunt, she went back into the family tree and we figured out that it was my grandmother's aunt and uncle's wedding date. So I think it must've been her uncle who's not related by blood, you know, blood, um, his wedding ring. Cause it's, cause it's kind of big. So at first I was like, well, why am I wearing this this ring now? <laughs> but then my aunt said that my grandmother had had a close relationship with him, but it also just sort of made me think about, so that he had, they had a child, but who didn't have, they actually had two children, one who died suddenly at 12. And then I think their lives kind of stopped. And then they had a daughter who did not have any children. And so, because I, I was having this thought like, there must be somebody else who who this ring would mean something to who who's connected to these people and then i was like oh actually no i'm the i'm the most connected and so i don't know i was just thinking about like people stay alive if we if we keep them alive um so i was you know googling this person who i maybe have heard about but barely um but you know and you make me think of you know just objects like objects have no inherent meaning Mm-hmm. You know, we, it's the meaning that we place on them. And especially those things that we've inherited, we want to, you know, we hope a little bit of that person's stardust is on it and we want to tell the stories. So I think it's fascinating that this ring that had one type of meaning for you now has a different type. Absolutely. It's like, oh, if it wasn't engraved, I would just have gone on thinking it was my grandmother's wedding ring. That would have been fine too. <laughs> but... So you've talked some about it, but I was still curious, how has your grief kind of changed you through your lifetime? You know, I think, I mean, you talk about this, about how, how much our, how much work our culture has to do had in terms of sort of really integrating death into, into, um, into life in a, in a more healthy way or a more integrated way. You know, I think that we, we know that there are other cultures where it's, it is more part of the daily experience. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think I had a lot of resistance to, to claiming grief. Um, you know, I think there's sort of, it's easy for people to make a hierarchy of grief, right? So if you lose a child, that's the worst. If you lose a partner, that's the, you know, sort of to have this hierarchy. And I don't think that serves anyone. Um, and I think, you know, I think my grandmother did really give me this gift of being able to think about what is it, you know, how do you keep people alive? But I think also I have grown into that. You know, I had those words. I think a lot about the things that I knew how to say before I actually 
knew how to feel them or or to live them. And I think that that um, that that is part of how it's it's changed, um, how grief has changed in me and how it's changed me. Um, I had this conversation with my daughter the other day because she was going away for a couple of weeks and my parents, her grandparents wanted to see her before she left. And she said to me, like, I'm only going to be gone for two weeks. Like it's not, I'm not moving there. <laughs> and, um, and I had never thought this before, but I, I said to her, you know, it's, you know how, when you were really little, she's 14, but you know, like when you're six and a month feels like a lifetime, right? Like you're in third grade for ever, you know, because time is so different. And as you get older, time speeds up. And I was like, I think at the other end, it also changes, you know, that they're 80 and they're not going to see you for two weeks, but they have a feeling that they, they don't have forever that they're going to see you. So those two weeks feel longer. Um, and I hadn't ever sort of, I don't know if that's true, but I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way of, you know, sort of that, that side of mortality, I think. Well, and it is that thing, you know, time is a construct, right? And so when we, ha- when we have those experiences that really lets us see that it's not this linear equaled out thing that we like to fool ourselves. It is when we look at a calendar. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we always like to ask, like, how do you support others in their grief, whether it's things you say or don't say, or things that you do? Yeah. You know, um, when you ask that, I think of this other piece of my grief story, which is that in college, my best friend's father died. Um, see, I always cry. <laughs> um, so, so we were 20 and that's, you know, I mean, there's no good time, but that it was hard. And one of the things that was hard was that we were surrounded by a lot of 20 year olds who really didn't know how to manage it. I mean, I think we, we see that, uh, that oftentimes adults really have a hard time relating to someone else's grief, but the, but, you know, college students really didn't. And so I, I learned a lot <laughs> through watching that because I was on the inside. So I, you know, and I think that what I, what I maybe just instinctively knew to do was to witness, was to just be present. Right. So I was just there a lot. Um, and you know, we we can have some, I, I can have a lot of grace for these 20 year olds now at the time we were like, why does everyone say the wrong thing? You know, but people would say like, well, you're so lucky you had a good father. Like that's not actually very helpful. You know, they, um, and also some people just, I think really stayed away. And I think that probably still, I, I know that that happens with adults too. They were like, this is, I don't know what to do. So those are the like, obviously I never tell anyone that they're lucky because it's not, that's not useful. And I, and I think I try and show up um, and, you know, and not stay away, not have the discomfort of loss or the unhappiness of loss um, be a barrier. And I think I also, I mean, sometimes like, do I prepare meals? Sometimes I think, you know, I've learned somewhere to, to like do the, you know, offer really specific things, um, you know, and for better or worse, I'm, I think I'm often good at sort of anticipating what some, what might be useful 
you know, do you want me to order food for the Shiva? Do you want me to arrange childcare? Do you like, I can, um, and I think that that's, that is one, but I, that is one way. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just really trying to not to shy away from the grief. You know, I think some people it's hard to say death or dead or died or things. And, you know, just, um, I mean, following someone's lead, but being, being able to not shy away from naming what's happened. Oh, I, we think that is so important. You know, it's part of why we do this because, um, the more people, the more people sit with it, have experience with it, the, the better we all get at just normalizing grief and being able to say what it is that's on our heart and be able to say that someone died instead of passed away. And, um, I love what you said and the things that we don't say, right. You've heard this, like anything that starts with at least is not a good thing to say. <laughs> if I hear those words coming, I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> just, just sit with your own, sit with your own discomfort for all of us. Like that's how we get to grow as humans. Mm -hmm. uh, so we always like to ask towards the end, if there's anything else you'd like to add or any other thoughts you had that you want to share. You know, one of the, when I was thinking about adding some pieces to the, what I read about my grandmother, one of the stories was I was once with her at a museum. We were, we were often at museums, but one time we were at a museum with, I think it was a curator or a, somebody who I think she had given some money, something, but somebody who wanted to keep things nice is what I'll say. And I, I don't remember very much of it, but she, but my grandmother said, I think she referred to, to some Asian people as Oriental. That, that is what I think she did. And I said, you, that's, you know, that's not the right thing to say. You can't say that. And so we had this conversation about, um, how terms change and, you know, I'm sure I was saying, but, you know, but we use the terms that people want to be called. It doesn't matter what we're used to. Da, da, da. And the man who was taking us around pulled me aside and said, um, you know, she's old. You should let her say what, you know, don't, don't push her. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I was like, I had a very real relationship with her. So I'm sure that I corrected her not gently. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a fairly gentle person. I don't think I was nasty, but I think I, um, but you know, but I was like, you can't say that. Right. I had a, I had feelings around it and he was like, you know, she's old. You just let it go. And I was like, who are you talking about? Because she was interested in you know, certainly in my thinking about it, but also in how the world was changing. And I don't, that story came to me as you were taught, like, I think that's, there is a way that, that she gets to keep growing and changing, even though obviously her physical body isn't here, but as I change and as I, that our relationship keeps changing. And I just think about like, that was, you know, till to the end, she wanted to keep learning and understanding things. And so that, that is a quality of hers that continues in the world. Um, and that, you know, didn't need to be, she didn't need to be protected. She needed to be of the world. And so that's, that continues. Well, and I'm just going to add knowing you, this is a way that you're like her, right? <laughs> that you are, you are such a curious, thoughtful person 
who um, growing matters to you, right? And so that's also a way that you get to keep her alive in you and through you and in the world. Thank you for saying that. That's lovely. It's true. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I, you said so many beautiful things and it's going to touch people in ways that we cannot possibly know or anticipate or, um, it, it, it's just so, it's so lovely. And your, your story will, will resonate with so many people and whether or not they've lost a grandparent, there are things that you said that will touch them in their own losses and their own understanding of who they are and how they are in the world and how we keep people, how we keep people alive as long as we're speaking their names. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I so appreciate the work that you two are, are doing together and the community that has grown up around it. It's really beautiful. Thank you. It's still a surprise to us <laughs> how it keeps growing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. If you would like to join our community, we'd love to have you in it. We're on Facebook at uh, the Coffee and Grief Community. So you can join us in there. We'd love to hear your stories in that group. We'd also love if you would contact us if you have any questions or if there's something you'd like us to talk about. Our email is coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. Um, we host a coffee talk the first Thursday of every month. It's a similar to this. There's five different readers who will read a personal grief story, and then uh, there's not any conversation afterwards. They're about an hour long, and there's a Zoom link for each individual month that will be on our Facebook page. We'd love to have you in the Zoom room. We always like to end by saying, be good to yourself, be kind to your hearts, drink plenty of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another. Please come back. We love you. We're so happy to be with you today. We love you. Bye. We love Bye. you. Bye. <laughs>